obviously remembering those who gave their life in the service of our country. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, every single Sunday we have here at Four Oaks is an opportunity for us to remember another death. And this is someone who did not stay dead, but rose from the grave, and that's Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection, what we do in this life has meaning. It echoes for eternity. If there is no eternity, then, then, then the secular world is right. Eat, drink, make merry, for tomorrow we may die. But we know that there is life, life eternal because of Jesus Christ. And that's why we take an offering, one of the reasons, so that we can leverage what is, what is temporary in this life, which is money, for the sake of building the kingdom and the gospel in the local church. And so, so we, we gladly invite you to join in that and participate in that. So let me commit these gifts to the Lord. Lord Jesus, whether we give online, whether we, we give in an offering basket, whether we give by texting, Lord, that's just all techno stuff. The ultimate aim here is to, is to leverage our lives for what truly matters. And so, Father, we, you know, what does it profit a man if he's to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And so, Lord, as an act of discipline, we give this morning, and we pray that you would multiply these gifts in the building of your church and kingdom. We do thank you in this life. There are people who, who die for the sake of the gospel, who die for the sake of freedom and, and country, and pray, Lord, honor them, honor their families um, during this season, Lord, and we commit these gifts to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As those baskets are making their way around, just one final announcement. Um, we are in the process starting today of voting on our, our, and if you didn't get the idea of what we want you to do, okay, so, so we're not, we don't master the art of subtlety here, but if you're, if you're a covenant member, we'd love for you to vote on the 2015-16 budget, our church officers, and we, have, we will be sending out an email today where you can vote electronically um, and online. If that totally horrifies you, by the way, of voting online and you need an actual physical paper ballot, if you're like my dad, who's used a computer one time in his life and he tried to get the mouse and speak into it, and that is not a lie, I promise that is so true, I have witnesses to, if, if you're that guy, if you're if you my dad, you need a paper ballot, stop by the welcome area or the connect desk and Debbie Tannis will get you one. Okay, so we don't want to leave you out. All right, turning your Bibles to Acts 28. For folks, believe it or not, this is, this is our last Sunday in the book of Acts. And we have, we have spent 30-some-odd sermons rolling through a series that we, have called, that we called Unconquered. You know, and this is, this is, a, link, this is a lengthy passage because it, it winds up the whole narrative, and so we want to get right into it. And remember that, that Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem. He's been put on trial. The Jews are trying to railroad false charges against him. He, he knows that these charges are spurious, but to, to, to defend his life, he doesn't believe the Lord is calling him home yet, he appeals to Caesar. He's like, I can't get a fair trial in Jerusalem. I can't get a fair trial in Caesarea. I'm, I'm going all the way to Caesar, which was his right because he was a Roman citizen. And so, so uh, Felix or Festus puts him on a ship, 
And he, as we saw last week, this was a tumultuous journey. They were, they were shipwrecked on Malta. There was, they almost lost their, their very lives. But now, in our text today, we are going to find that Paul finally arrives in Rome. The, 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 pinnacle, the pinnacle of, of, of civilization and, and where he believed he always had wanted to go. But as we are going to find, he did not arrive in the way that he thought. And there's much to learn from this. So we're going to begin in verse 11 in chapter 28. We'll splash the text up here on the screen for you. Now, after three months, now Luke is, Luke is writing and he's speaking because he's with Paul. He said, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. And putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apis and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now let me just pause there. I'm going to make a secondary side comment that really is not the main point of the text. Just notice, Four Oaks, and, and this has been the case all the way through. Remember that, that Luke didn't just write Acts, he wrote Luke and Acts. And this was one gigantic narrative that spanned 60 years. And, and there's passage after passage like this where Luke's testimony rings true historically because of the great detail. You know, you know parents, when do you know that your child is telling a lie? Okay. Um, you know, lies oftentimes masquerade behind great generalities. You know, mom, we were over here doing, you know, it just has the, the ring of total implausibility. You know, you just put the big stamp on it that says bull, right? Okay, and so, so that, so, but when you read Luke's narrative, I mean, it is detailed. It is down to what the ship looked like and how long it took to get here. And I just simply point that out to us and say, Four Oaks, we we worship um, a God who is, who is real, who has revealed himself in history. Um, it is not obscure. It is not hidden. Um, it is verifiable. Luke is a first-rate historian. I just, that's for free. So anyway, I just wanted to make that comment, okay? So after three days, he called together, he, now Paul's in Rome now. He called the the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. And for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil against you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, meaning Christianity, 
we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. In disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Here's what he said. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. In their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. Or is it? You know, I believe it was Martha Reeves and the Vandellas who first sang in 1964 that the summer's here, the time is right for dancing in the street, right? So I don't know how many, how many kids are dancing right now or how many parents are moaning or whatever, but I can tell you the Gilberts are, are, are dancing. You know, the, the summer season for us is when we fire up the Netflix and Redbox and, X, can I keep going, Xfinity On Demand, Hulu Plus, Apple TV, okay? And we have this ritual, the Gilbert family does, of devouring multiple episodes at a time of our favorite shows, okay? Maybe you can relate. So whether it's Survivor or Amazing Race or 79 Kids and Counting or, or, or whatever the, the case may be, the reason I love ODing on series like that is that I hate watching an episode and having to, to wait a whole week to find out what, what happens next. Okay, I want to know how the story ends right now. I can't stand not having a satisfactory ending. And so this seems to, indulging ourselves in this way, seems to scratch that itch. You know, it's kind of interesting that that's really what's happening here in the book of Acts. You know, we have been churning Four Oaks through episode after episode in this book spanning 30 years of time. And I just want you to think for a minute um, of everything that we've, that, we, that we've hit on. I mean, Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit is poured down at Pentecost and the church is born. And by the way, this is the time in the church calendar when churches celebrate Pentecost or the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's the growth of the church in Jerusalem. There is persecutions and the church is scattered and there's planting of churches and the inclusion of Gentiles. And we're introduced to Paul, who who is a church planting machine. And, And here we come to the climax of the book. Paul is going to stand trial before the most powerful man in the world, Caesar, in one of the most powerful civilizations of the world, Rome. And we are all here at the end of this book asking, what is going to happen next? How is this going to conclude? What is going 
to happen. And we get to the end of this book, and Luke just tells us in two verses this. Think about this. He just says, Paul lived there two whole years, and he welcomed all who came, and he, brought, he preached, and he taught the word of God with all hindrance and without hindrance and with all boldness. And I don't know about you, but I read that and I say, Luke, what in the world? <laughs> is that all you have for us? Okay, we've been in this, you've been writing us a, a history book of 30 years. Four Oaks Church, Luke, did you not know? We we're going to be in this book for a whole year and we get to the end before the greatest trial of the century and this is all you have for us. Luke, what happens next? Luke, how does this end? Luke, we are not satisfied emotionally with this ending. It's like getting to the end of Lost or Mad Men or, don't watch that one, MASH or Seinfeld, there we go, or the Cosbys. And things just abruptly end in the middle of the scene. And we want to know what happened. Now, I'm going to commit a homiletical felony, okay? And I'm going to do what they teach you not to do in seminary. And I'm going to tell you right out of the gate, right off the top, I'm not going to wait till the end, I'm going to tell you what I, what I think Luke is doing here and how we ought to think about this. And I'm going to tell you why I don't think this is an anticlimactic conclusion. In fact, I think it's a, an, an uber-climactic conclusion I think it's going to help us understand not just how to read the rest of this chapter, but really, Four Oaks, as you walk out of here today, how we're to think about the rest of the book. And so if, let's, if you have your Bibles, you can go back to Acts 1.8. We're going to flash it up here too. This is the, the very first sermon that we preached in September in this series where we unpacked Acts 1.8. And if you remember, we said this is really... The, the thesis sentence or verse of the entire book. And, and, and let me read it again for us. Here's what Luke says. And this is the words of Jesus to the disciples. And by the way, this is the, the apostles. This is the very last thing Jesus said as part of his earthly ministry. The very last thing. Not the Great Commission, by the way. Okay, That was, that was at a different context. But the very last thing he says before he ascends. And here, here it is. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Four Oaks, I think you can make the case that everything that Luke narrates in Acts and writes about for 28 chapters is really him unpacking this one verse. So we see in Acts 1 through 7 that the Holy Spirit comes and Jerusalem is literally transformed for the gospel. Okay. To- thrown in total upheaval. Remember, thousands are coming to the Lord Jesus on the day of Pentecost, and it disrupts the whole life of that city, and Jerusalem is transformed. But we saw in Acts 8 through 12 how the church is scattered by persecution, and where do they take the gospel? To where? Judea and Samaria, um, to places like Antioch, to places like Syria, to places like Damascus. And finally, the last third of the book, Acts 13 through 28, what we really have is the story of the gospel spreading out all across the known world. 
And the reason for Oaks that I, I think Luke doesn't give us to the conclusion, didn't give us the conclusion to this story is very simple. The story has not concluded. Okay? The story is still going on. In fact, Four Oaks, do you realize that we are living in the middle of the story? We are telling the story right now that we are in. We are right in the middle of it. We are part of the fulfillment of what Luke writes in Acts 1-8, that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And this book ends with the gospel being proclaimed literally feet away from Caesar's bedroom. Literally feet away from the great throne room of the most powerful man at that time. The gospel, Luke says, is going forth unhindered. It's going forth boldly. You see, this, folks, this ending isn't anticlimactic. This is Luke's way of saying the gospel's power is unstoppable. The gospel's power is unconquerable despite whatever human obstacle is thrown up in its way. It keeps going. It has no end. We leave this book, and guess what? Paul is still chained. Paul is still chained, but guess what? The gospel isn't. The gospel is not chained, and we are, we are witnesses and part of the fulfillment of this story. Now, I will, at the end of our time today, speculate a little bit historically about what we think actually happened to Paul. Okay? So we're, we'll, we'll mention that, what happened to Paul himself. But understand, folks, that's not the main point of Acts. See, there's something much bigger about this story than what's going on with Paul. And understand this, there's something much bigger about your story that's going on than you. You see, we and Paul are all just players, actors on a larger stage of gospel history. And, and, and here is the point of Acts, okay? There is a group of 120 scared, befuddled, confused band of disciples at the end of Luke, followers of Christ, huddled together after Jesus' death. They're wondering what's next. They're wondering if there is any hope. They're wondering, have I flushed my life away? Is this all a fairy tale? Maybe some of you can relate as you think about the circumstances in your own life. And Luke tells us that from Acts 1, the gospel, like a phoenix, rises from the ashes and it does its work. And we get to the end of the Acts, and this is Luke's way of telling us, folks, God is having his way. He is prevailing, not apart from trial and suffering. This is not prosperity gospel, name it, claim it. It's through trial and suffering. It's against all odds. And I believe Acts is a prism to view our own life through to interpret what's happening. You know, this weekend, um, Virginia came into to one of the rooms where we have a TV, and she said, Dad, something's wrong with this TV. So, got my attention, and I said, well, what's wrong with it? She said, it's not an HD. Okay, lovely, eight years old, okay? And I said, I mean, seriously, Susan's like, I can't tell any difference between channel 33 and 413, and Virginia's like, I, I, it's, I said, well, Virginia, how do you know? And she said, well, Dad, things don't look like they're supposed to, okay, on this TV. 
and really started thinking about it. You know, guys, without the perspective of Acts, life doesn't look like it's supposed to. Because it's very easy on a human level to see the the persecutions and the suffering of Paul and just be like, God, what, what are you doing? Or look at our own lives and say, God, what are you doing? But when we put on the lenses of Acts in Acts 28 and see what God's ultimate purpose is in the history of the human universe, and that's to make his name great, to glorify himself, to send forth the gospel, to do its work, then life begins to take a different focus. The events of our life we begin to interpret differently. We don't see persecution or suffering or illness or pain in quite the same way. And we know, God, there's something greater than those things that you're doing in my life and through me. And so I want to use the rest of our time this morning, for Oaks, just to draw two quick lessons from this text as we exit Acts that I want us to remember that I think will be a ground for us for hope in the coming days. So just two points. Number one, even in what appears to be our darkest personal hour, God is always going before us. Okay, I want you to say, let me say it again. Even in our darkest personal hour, whatever that hour is for you, what does that represent for you? I want you to know God is already there. God, is, God has beat you to that place and is, in fact, preparing you and that place for you. So let's look at the text. As you know, Paul's never been to Rome. We know from Romans 15, you know, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans that even though he had never visited there with his theological treatise, and he tells us in Romans 15 that he always wanted to go to Rome. And for Paul, it represented the pinnacle of gospel work. You know, Paul's strategy was to go to cities to plant churches, and here he was finally making it to Rome, which in that time was the city. However, he was not getting there the way he thought. He was in chains. He was going to see Caesar, all right, but he was doing it as a prisoner to be put on trial with the very real prospect of dying right then and there. This was, this was not how Paul thought it would be. I know a lot of you are packing your bags and heading out this summer. This is kind of like you know, Chevy Chase taking his family on the summer vacation to Wally World, right? And so driving up to the gates and Wally World is closed and the dead grandmother is tied up on top of the, the car. Okay, remember this? Okay, a big, big closed sign outside on the gate. They got there all right, <laughs> just not the way they thought it would be. And, and this was Paul. Now, now, let me clarify and say, Paul got it. He knew the big picture he knew God's providence. He knew God had orchestrated all these things to get him there and, and all those things. He knew about God's sovereignty and his care for him through the trials and the voyage and the shipwreck. But, but here's an interesting thing. I think this is going to greatly encourage us to remember that Paul was a man just like us. You see, you can believe, and, and, and by, Paul was terrified. Paul's terrified. I'll show you that in a second. But just know this, Four Oaks. 
you can believe and be trusting in God's providence and sovereignty. Um, you, you, you can put a stake in his control in your life, but you can still be scared out of your mind. This, is a, this passage is a great encouragement to me because we know Paul was very scared and very anxious and very fearful. Why? Look at verse 15. It says that, that when Paul saw the brothers, he what? Took courage. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> Paul needed to take courage because Paul was scared. Paul was fearful. He had the lens of the providence of God. But this is, this is, scary, this is scary stuff. And just because we trust in God doesn't mean we won't be fearful. We are, we are human. We are weak. We are frail. And what I want us to see from this passage is how God cares for Paul right in that moment. And that should get our attention, Four Oaks, because we are often asking, are we not, God, how will you care for me in this moment? I'm walking through this thing in my marriage. I'm walking this thing through my, my job transition. I'm walking this thing financially. I, I, my, my marriage is dissolving. My children are disobeying. Whatever that thing is for you, how does God care for us in that moment? Look in verse 14. It says they came to Patoli, and it says they, and this is an interesting phrase, found the brothers. Okay? It's like you're kind of, your child is like digging in the yard. Your, ch- your children dig in the yard and, make, and, and, and burst your sprinkler system okay, like they do ours. Okay, do your kids dig in the yard and they find something like really cool. That's kind of the idea. Paul arrived, and he's a hundred, I understand this, he's at 140 miles from Rome, 140 miles. He lands in the city, and it says he found the brothers. How did they get there? We don't know. (laughs) They're just there. It says in verse 15, look there, it says these brothers met him outside of Rome in a place, they came as far as the Forum of Apius in three taverns, and that was no small thing for Oaks. This isn't like, I'll meet you down at the Circle K, and we'll like hang out, okay? 40 miles meant days of journey, sometimes dangerous journey. And so these people heard that Paul was coming, these Christians, they left the city, they traveled 40 miles to meet him, and they traveled the whole 40 miles back. How did they get there? We don't know. I mean, we can speculate that there was Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and when they were persecuted... This was a long time ago, 25 years ago, up at, from this point. Maybe they, were, maybe they came back to Rome, and I, we don't know. And I think that's part of the, of the beauty, because here it is. We don't know, because Luke doesn't want us to know, the point is that Paul thinks he's going to Rome to preach the gospel. And what he finds is that the gospel has beat him there. God has gone before Paul. God had prepared ministry and care for Paul. Now listen to this. This is so cool. Decades before Paul even knew that he would need it. God had put these people in his path sovereignly, supernaturally, decades before. Now they were housing him and feeding him. And it says that Paul took courage and praised God. Folks, just know, whatever prospect 
of concern, worry, or anxiety that is before you. Fearing tomorrow, next week, the next decision, the next step, the next obstacle. Take courage. God has already gone before you. You know, when Susan and I decided to come to Tallahassee in 1996, my, my mother-in-law was, was, it was visiting this weekend, and she's still embittered against me for this, okay, but it's okay, all right. We knew not one soul, okay, knew not one soul, and there was understandably a lot of fear and anxiety as we contemplated decisions about school and career and what we were doing with our life, and little beknownst to us, a little church called Four Oaks had been planted seven years earlier. Now, at this time, Susan and I didn't know a whit about Four Oaks. We were 20-year-olds in college, flirting around at Campus Crusade for Christ meetings, okay, in the middle of one of our 19th breakups, okay, before we even knew that we were going to marry and move to Tallahassee and be in great need, God had gone before us. Christian, wherever you are going, God is already there. And one of the primary ways, and this is so, what's cool is that this is no mystery how God does this, by the way, okay? It's a mystery, but, it's, it's, but how this tangibly works out is pretty amazing. Look at the passage. It's one of the primary ways that God goes before us in the way that he cares for you, he does it through his people. He does it through his people. Guys, I get the idea of this, that Jesus meets all of our needs. That's totally true. But oftentimes, the way he meets our needs is through means. So sometimes it's, it's, it's my grace is sufficient. That's all you got, Paul. That's all you got. My grace. That's it. But I think if we examine our lives, most of us would say normatively, God always positions his people into our lives to care for us in the hardest places. You know, it's culturally hip these days to hate on the church. The church has done this, and the church is disappointed, and the church is embittered, and leaders have failed, and all of that is totally true. But when we hate on the church, we're oaks, we're really hating on whom? Jesus. Because Jesus says in Ephesians 5, the church is my body. I gave myself up for the church. I died for the church. I shed blood for the church. Don't hate on the church. Jesus said, I, these are my brothers and sisters. This is, these, are my, these are my people. And we have this idea sometimes that, that God is to be found out there somewhere. If I can just get away from his people, and, and, you've, and you've seen the bumper stickers, right? God, please save me from your followers, okay? And that sort of thing. If I can get out to nature, if I can just take a break from church, if I can take a break from my fellowship group, this is so hard, this is so, this is so arduous, this is so difficult. Things just seem to be messed up when I get involved with people, this lesson just totally, completely reminds us, this, this chapter, the way for us that God normatively provides care and ministry for us is through relationship. This is Paul's rescue. God has gone before him, preparing the way. And Paul does not say, I'm, I'm, 
where are you, where are you, Christ? And Christ is saying, I'm right here in your people, in, in my people, in your midst. Whenever you do it to these, what does Jesus say? You do it unto me. Guys, this summer, don't neglect the assembling together. And I don't mean just here in worship, although that's part of it. But don't neglect the greatest means of care and rescue that God gives us as his people. It's the way he cares for us. A second point. So even in what appears to be our darkest personal hour, God is going before us. This text also shows us that even in what appears to be our darkest cultural hour, God is going before us. Let's look back at the text. You know, when Paul gets to Rome, he calls the Jews in to see him because Paul wants to proclaim the gospel to them. You know, and basically, wherever Paul went in his church planning endeavors, there were three groups of people in every city, okay? There were, there were, there were Gentiles, okay, Romans or Greeks, there were Jews, and then there were Christians, and here, Paul, I mean, we see all three of these groups in play here, don't we? And so Paul calls the third group, the, the, the Jews, to him. And, and he begins to kind of unpack his story and, and the charges that are brought against him. And he's, he's defending himself. And he's not defending himself to defend himself. He does not want there to be any obstacle to the gospel, stumbling block whatsoever. And, and, and here, and this is very interesting, Paul is making it very clear what his heart is to the Jewish people. Guys, could, can, would, would this be your heart to your own countrymen after his countrymen have, all, have, done, have done what for the past two years? Tried to kill him. Okay. Everywhere he goes, Paul's thrown out of the synagogue. Everywhere he goes, the Jews hate him. Everywhere he goes, he's proclaiming, they're kicking him out of the temple, they're having him arrested, they're false charges. But guys, Paul's heart is for his brothers, his ethnic brothers. And so he calls them together, and he spends, look at the text, all morning and evening, laboring in love, teaching Christ to them. And we come to this interesting verse, and look in verse 22. This is a very interesting verse, because it kind of shows the, the cultural climate that the, that the church was living in at that time. And it says this, very interesting in verse 22. It says, We desire to hear from you what your views are, Paul, for with regard to this sect, and by that they mean Christianity, this is very interesting, it, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Everywhere, Paul. By everyone. You see, Christians... Folks were being, and we've seen this in the book of Acts time after time, they were being pressed in from two sides. On one side were the Romans and, and Gentiles and Greeks who said, this gospel stuff is foolish. It is crazy talk. Okay? And then on the other side, they were pressed in by the Jews who said, Paul, this gospel stuff is scandalous. Okay? This, is, this crucified Messiah thing and so, in essence, there weren't three groups of people. There were what? Really, two groups of people. There were Christians and those who were oftentimes violently opposed to the gospel. 
And that's just the way it was. And we've seen this, right, from the first pages of Acts, that there is this massive cultural war going on. And we see the riot in Ephesus by whom? The Gentiles. And then we see the riot in Jerusalem by whom? The Jews. Guys, the, the, the church was being crunched culturally from both sides. Now, in case you haven't noticed, we are being crunched in our own cultural war today. And let's be honest, the culture appears to be winning. And so whether it's Supreme Court decisions or erosion of of religious uh, liberty, a growing hostility to all things Christian, you don't have to read Culture War for Dummies, right, to know that the culture is no longer being shaped or influenced by any kind of overarching, widespread Christian influence. You know, there was a time 60, 70 years ago where parents, you could send your child to public school, you could, you could send them down the street to play with their, with their neighbors and their friends, um, you could send them to church, you could have people into your home, and you could basically more or less trust that everyone is on the same moral page. Okay? What they heard in any of those arenas was going to be basically the same thing, and obviously we know that's no longer the case. You know, it was interesting at our family meeting this past week, someone had a question at the end of our family meeting and said, you know, are, are, we, are we planning financially for the prospect of losing our tax-exempt status as a church because we won't affirm this, that, or the other um, cultural issue related to, to sexuality. Now, now, 10 years ago, even five years ago, sort of an unthinkable question, but now we all understand that's not academic, right? That's very real. Now, let me push back on this for a second. Our impulse as good Christianized, okay, I'm going to use the word Christianized, Americans to say, this is a bad thing, Pastor Paul. This is a tragic thing. And in some ways, it is. But let's let Acts 28 reframe this cultural issue and hope for us just for a second. What's remarkable about the book of Acts is that even in the midst of its own cultural war, the church was still spreading like wildfire. And we have to ask how and why and what we can learn from it and what does God call us to today. Because one of the, one of the great spiritual tragedies, I believe, of the last 125 years is that it has introduced a category of person to us, unbeknownst to this time, in the, at least from the Bible, and that's the nominal Christian. Okay? At one time, there, there were two kinds of people, Christians who follow Christ and non-Christians who don't. Does that seem pretty straightforward? Okay? The last 100 years have introduced another category. There's Christians who follow Christ, there's non-Christians who don't, and there's a third category of people who we would say are, are kind of Christian. Do you know what I mean? Okay? Influence, someone influenced by Christian values, they might be moral, they kind of mentally give assent to various things, but, there's, but you're just like, what? There's really no heart change. There's really no, no, no engagement, personal engagement with the Lord. I mean, they might attend church, they might believe in tradition, 
They might uphold moral values, but they're, are they really trusting in Jesus Christ? And by the way, the nominal Christian is possible only in an affluent spiritual culture where there is no opposition to the gospel. That's only possible in an affluent culture where the cost for being a Christian doesn't have to be counted. And let's be honest, it's been very, compared to the rest of the world, very easy to be a Christian historically in the United States of America. Here's what we know from Acts 28, okay? And let, let me say it real clearly. Gospel offense, cultural offense, is necessary for the gospel to move forward. Because opposition brings clarity. And opposition eradicates what I would call the squishy middle. Because the squishy middle only confuses people as to the true nature and cost of what it means to be a Christian. Now, there was some Pew Research came out with a study this week. We talked about the waning influence of the church in America. But when you, when you kind of unpack the data, what you found is that it's really mainline churches, nominal Christianity, which is slowly, slowly dying. But it's evangelicals whose prominence and influence in numbers that are growing. And so what does this tell us, guys? Nominal Christianity is disappearing. As cultural opposition increases, nominal Christianity disappears, but committed Christianity is rising. Because what's left is the true gospel. And this is what we find in the book of Acts for us. That, that Acts reminds us that God built the church. And it's so easy to look around the culture and say, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. Guys, God built the church in a much, much, much more hostile environment that we are currently living in. And as we look around and we are tempted to despair because our little niche of Christendom seems to be disappearing, take heart, the Word of God has not failed. It's not the end of the world. It might be the end of some things, but the Gospel goes on unconquered. Because Acts tells us, and it will be true in every culture, the more opposition, the more gospel flourishing. So in the meantime, as the squishy middle, as I would call it, disappears, what are we to do? What are we to commit ourselves to? And we want to take our cues from the Apostle Paul. I'm going to mention three quick things and we're done. Number one, Paul invites them over. Well, I'll use some... some some postmodern jargon, Paul invites them over. These Jews who hate him, these Jews who are opposed to him, Paul invites them over. Guys, being angry at the culture is not going to win anyone to Jesus Christ. Paul takes the relational initiative and reaches out and engages. And let me just encourage you, summer months are a great time to do this. I had a conversation with a neighbor 
We talked about getting together our families for dinner. Never would happen in the school year, right? Too crazy, too busy. Summer, barbecue, fro-yo, inviting neighbors to church. People seem to be more relationally open in the summer months than they are at other times. Take advantage of it. Invite them over. That's what Paul does. Number two, Paul tells his story. Okay, and we've seen this. One of Paul, and we from a couple weeks ago, one of Paul's favorite evangelistic techniques in proclaiming Christ is to tell how God transformed him personally through the gospel. Because when we say that Paul spent morning and evening, that's a lot of hours. Okay. What was Paul saying to them? We don't know everything Paul was saying to them. We really don't know any. But we, we know from the rest of Acts the kinds of things Paul said in similar circumstances. You better believe Paul shared his story. You better believe Paul shared his story with Jesus at the center. Guys, I'll say something controversial. Our mandate, our mandate has never been to shape the culture towards Christian values. That's not our mandate. Our mandate is to make disciples and to win people for Jesus Christ. When converts are one, culture is inevitably shaped. But when we try to shape or accommodate culture first, not only do we, do we lose the, the culture, we lose the gospel. Guys, share your gospel story. And third thing, walk in faith. Walk in faith. That's what Paul did. Paul knew in this passage, what he could do and what he could not do. And after proclaiming God's word and seeing most of this Jewish crowd filter out and reject the message, what does he say? He quotes from Isaiah. It's like, sovereign God, this is yours. Their eyes are are closed. Their ears are closed. Their hearts are hardened. God, this this belongs to you. I entrust them to you. I did my part. And God, it's going to have to be up to you now. Folks, be a gospel warrior before you are a cultural one. That's what Paul did. Last thought, what happened? What do we think happened to Paul? We do know that Paul wrote four letters from prison in Rome. Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. Don't ever think that God cannot use you to advance the gospel and the kingdom despite difficult circumstances in your life. In fact, we can make the case that those, Paul's experience in chains completely enriched the letters that he wrote to these churches. Luke does give us some tantalizing clues. He says that Paul was there two whole years. Isn't this interesting? Paul, for Luke to write that, do you understand Luke had to write that after Paul undoubtedly had been released, or something had happened. But Luke doesn't tell us why, because that wasn't the point. But we do know that two years was sort of the standard statutory period. And most theorize that the Jews did not show up to bring charges against Paul, because in that day, if you brought spurious charges against someone, you might be the one with your head on the block. And so... As we read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, we realize these are letters that Paul wrote after his first release. 
Did he go to Spain on a fourth missionary journey? We don't know. We do know that Paul was imprisoned again a second time, and that 2 Timothy was his last letter, and that ended in his martyrdom and beheading at the hands of Nero. But even in that, folks, here's what we can learn, and I'll close with this. As Matt Chandler says, the messenger goes into the ground, and for folks, all of us are going into the ground. But the message never dies. It keeps going. 2,000 years later, your life, my life, the life of this church, until that day Jesus returns for his people, until then, it is the gospel unconquered. I don't know of any better way to conclude our series on Acts than coming to the table this morning and remembering and celebrating and flying under the banner of King Jesus who went before us, who do not consider his life something to be held onto, but gave himself up for us, and then he calls us to follow him, to trust in him, to be gospel warriors and to see the gospel go forth unconquered. I invite our leaders to come up and prepare to serve.